This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Saturday, September 11th, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. 9-11 was a transformative moment for both the U.S. appetite for war and for the national security state that dramatically increased its surveillance powers over all Americans. Cato Institute senior fellow Patrick Eddington discusses the dramatic expansion of federal power and the fight over how Americans can find out about just how the government is spying or otherwise grabbing our data. Inevitably, when you talk about 9-11, everybody immediately launches into stories about where they were. And uh, I was at work. You were at home sick. When I say I was at work, I was a reporter in Louisville, Kentucky. You were a little closer. So what were you doing? On the morning of 9-11, I was actually supposed to be down there uh, at the Pentagon for a meeting to discuss uh, a number of veterans issues. At the time, I was the Associate Director of Government Relations at Vietnam Veterans of America, but I, I woke up shortly before nine that morning with what I thought was going to turn out to be strep throat. Anyway, I felt like hell. And so I let folks know that I wouldn't be in. And I, I turned on you know NBC, which most of my life has been my, my channel of choice for at least the evening news, but also today show occasionally. And it comes on and there we are with um, Katie Couric and Matt Lauer. And, you know, they cut to a scene of one of the towers burning and then they go on to say that the plane had slammed into it. And I'm, I'm looking at the sky and I'm like, I didn't see a cloud anywhere, right? So I was trying to figure out, okay, major malfunction, you know, whatever. And then moments later, the second airliner slams in. And in that instant, I knew we were under attack. And I was certain it was Al-Qaeda, mainly because of what had happened overseas the prior years. You know, we had the the East Africa bombings in 1998 and the attack on the USS Cole less than a year before uh, in the port of Aden in Yemen. Uh, And as we would, you know, subsequently learn, that's that's exactly who was, you know, behind it. But I, like everybody else, it was just a, it was, it was a horrific act. And then, you know, about 30 minutes after that, I'm, I'm in my apartment and I hear this roar. And I look out the window and it is another 757 uh, airliner with its wheels up and its uh, flaps up. And it was clearly on a trajectory towards downtown DC. And then a couple of seconds later, uh, I hear the boom, the window panes, you know, vibrate. And then the cloud rises. And I figured my best guess was the Pentagon. I, I had a feeling that's where it was. And unfortunately, that's exactly how it turned out. So, yeah. So, uh, you know, a stunning day, very uh, obviously a very emotional day, uh, massive loss of life uh, on that day. The United States shifts pretty much immediately to a war footing. Uh, and that war extended to, in a sense, Americans, uh, that, which is to say the government uh, gave itself massive new authorities under the Patriot Act. Obviously, we had within days, we had authorization for the use of military force. And within weeks, we had the Patriot Act. So put this into perspective here, because the Patriot Act presented what in terms of authorities to FBI, CIA, NSA and others? Right. We we actually had two tracks going when it when it came to surveillance. There was the supposedly above board uh, officially congressionally sanctioned track, which was the Patriot Act. And then there was the completely unconstitutional secret track <laughs> that we would only learn about um, through the New York Times uh, over four years after the fact. Uh, the program was called Stellar Wind. Uh, and it um, 
it was a massive, massive, and ultimately completely futile digital collection effort uh, for internet data and, and other related data. But I, I, what I think is important to remember about the Patriot Act is that the entire underlying concept behind both the Patriot Act and Stellar Wind and later the FISA Amendments Act was essentially a lie that the professional bureaucrats in the national security community managed to sell in a climate of fear, which was, we just didn't collect enough data. That's why this happened. That's why the bad guys got us. And, and so this gets rushed through Congress, the Patriot Act does, six weeks after the attacks. And this is all before any kind of examination of, of why the attack succeeded. And when we actually finally get the first of those reports in the summer of 2002, the Congressional Joint Inquiry, we find that we had plenty of data, um, in a, NSA, CIA, FBI. They just, they didn't play nicely together. They didn't share the data. They didn't collate it. They didn't, you know, to later use a, a phrase that the 9-11 Commission co-chairs, uh, Tom Kane of New Jersey, former Governor Tom Kane of New Jersey and former Congressman uh, Lee Hamilton of Indiana would use, they failed to connect the dots. Uh, but but that lie stuck. And despite numerous additional revelations, including the biggest ones, of course, by Edward Snowden, it did not result in a rollback of this stuff. And we really have not had a rollback to this point. And, and I think, you know, the surveillance slice of this is one thing, but if we take another step back and just think about all the other things that did not exist prior to 9-11 that we as Americans have to deal with now, uh, it's it's a lo- it's a fairly long list. We can't cover it all, but the Department of Homeland Security did not exist. This this travel abomination that we call the, the Transportation Security Agency did not exist. Um, the ability to detain and and interrogate an American without counsel overseas in the name of national security, a court decision uh, called Michelle v. Higginbotham, did not exist. And, you know, we could go on and on, but there are just so many ways that, that the law and the structure of government have changed and, and, and deformed our society and, and trashed in many respects the Constitution in, in ways that I think many of us are concerned may not get rolled back in our lifetimes. Uh, and that's terrifying. So obviously massive new surveillance authorities given to the NSA. What was the Department of Justice's role and what authorities were they given uh, after 9-11? Well, clearly, you know, the, the Section 215 of the Patriot Act is is the one that gets the most uh, ink and has gotten the most attention over the years. And of course, that's what's known as the business records provision, which basically allows the FBI to go and get pretty much anything they want on anybody from a business uh, with essentially a relatively minimal standard. Um, and of course, that also became known as the library provision uh, because they started going after people's uh, library records, or at least threatened to do so. And, and that's just also a throwback to the actual FBI library awareness program from the Cold War, by the way. I mean, this is not the first time the Bureau has taken an interest in what you and I read. Um, but th- but there's been so much more. And you spoke about the Department of Justice. And one of the biggest changes that really didn't get a lot of attention was at the very end of the Bush 43 administration. When then Attorney General Mike Mukasey modified the Attorney General guidelines on domestic investigations for the FBI, which had been around since the mid-1970s, and added this new class of quasi-slash-proto-investigation called an assessment. And, you know, at at Cato, I've written a lot about this. We have FOIA lawsuits underway on this very topic right now. But here's the bottom line with assessments. They can open one on you or me or an organization without having to go to a judge at all. An analyst can sit at his or her computer uh, at an FBI field office or at FBI headquarters 
and they can recruit and run confidential informants. They can do all kinds of database searches, uh, including classified database searches. Um, there are a number of things that they can basically get away with without having to go to a judge. And of course, you know, one of their, their victims, as we have discovered through this FOIA campaign that we have underway, uh, is Concerned Women for America. In July 2016, a, an FBI agent of the Washington field office did a series of database searches uh, looking for derogatory information on Concerned Women for America in the absence of any kind of predicate. And at this point, we have no idea just exactly how much of this kind of activity the FBI is engaged in. So we know now from the New York Times it, during the first two years, you make note of this in your piece at uh, antiwar.com, that during the first two years of Obama's tenure, the FBI opened 80,000 assessments. Yeah. Uh, and we all know that, generally speaking, um, government bureaucracies do not actually reduce the amount of paper that they generate, despite the Paperwork Reduction Act. <laughs> Uh, so I, I think we have good cause to believe that that number of roughly 40,000 a year probably has, has remained about the same. It wouldn't surprise me at all. So we, we could be looking at anywhere from, you know, 300,000 to 500,000 or more investigations of individuals and organizations without any kind of, of court review or approval, much less having any kind of predicate to start with. So it's it's a very disturbing thing. And of course, then there's what we don't know about other programs at all. You know, another lawsuit that we have in federal court right now targets the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board. They were supposed to put out a report on, on what uh, the CIA and other organizations had done in a counterterrorism context that might implicate the rights of Americans under Executive Order 12333, which of course is the, is the governing day-to-day -day architecture uh, for intelligence community operations. And they have failed to release any of that stuff. In fact, they let the CIA, from what we can tell, completely withhold their report. So we're in court suing over that. How much of this stuff has gone on behind the scenes, behind a cloak of secrecy that we still don't know about, I'm sure in the end we will learn, probably decades after the fact, was quite massive. Unless, unless we get some folks in Congress motivated enough to kind of take this thing on. We haven't even mentioned the Department of Homeland Security, one of the creations that occurred in the wake of 9-11. Um, David Ritgers, a former scholar at the Cato Institute, wrote uh, a great paper years ago, abolish the Department of Homeland Security. So what has DHS done with respect to privacy and the ability of Americans to conduct their lives privately and peacefully? Well, for decades, of course, they've, they've ran these internal checkpoints uh, in the United States, which is something that I think most people, uh, particularly folks who don't live in the Southwest, let's say Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, California, may not be aware of. But there are actually internal checkpoints in this country that they've been running. And of course, they've increased that activity, obviously, dramatically over the, uh, the last several years. But they're now, also- Now, when you, say, when you say internal checkpoints, you're referring to the 100 miles or so from the border into the United States, which covers a massive share of U.S. population. Yeah, as a matter of fact, it covers at least two-thirds of the U.S. population. And, and DHS's assertion of that zone, by the way, has never been put through any kind of rulemaking process, much less have an actual basis in statute. Uh, but they're getting away with this because Congress is letting them get away with it. And of course, in the digital age now, you know, what, what are they doing? Well, they're basically trying to seize people's cell phones, tablets, computers, and the like, uh, when you're returning, uh, you know, from an overseas trip, uh, this this is something that an awful lot of folks are are basically being subjected to now. And again, 
because the Immigration and Nationality Act uh, essentially gives them a tremendous amount of authority in this area. Uh, an awful lot of folks are having their privacy violated in that way. And this is journalists, it's activists, uh, working immigration issues, things of that nature. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, the the level essentially of of surveillance uh, and in many respects, political repression that we have seen in the post 9-11 era really does harken back to, to the darkest days of the Cold War. And I think what I fear above all else is that the longer this stuff goes on unchallenged, the longer it goes on without any kind of real congressional review, accountability, and above all, re- reform and or repeal, it becomes a permanent part of the fabric of American life. And then you're not talking about a functioning republic anymore. You really aren't. And I think that's what's at stake here. It, it really is ultimately about the future of freedom in this country in a very, very fundamental way. What do you make of uh, President Biden saying that he wants certain documents related to 9-11 declassified? I, I think the question is why anything is still classified, right? Whether we talk about these these potential uh, links between certain Saudi officials and the 9-11 hijackers, or whether we talk about the National Security Agency's virtually unexamined role uh, in this massive intelligence failure. Uh, we've done a lot of work at Cato on that. Um, we have a lot of very, very compelling evidence that NSA actually did have the capacity internally to probably stop these attacks in their tracks before they took place. But because of an internal bureaucratic battle over a couple of programs, uh, it never happened. Um, so there's all manner of things about what what led up to 9-11 that again remain behind a wall of secrecy. And that's not simply unfair to the families of the victims. It's unfair to every single one of us, because if you don't have accountability and judgment for the individuals who failed here, and I'm talking about people like Michael Hayden, John Brennan, others, if there isn't some level of accountability, and if there aren't fundamental changes made to ensure that that can't happen again, you invite a repeat. It's that simple. And somewhere James Clapper is enjoying a cold iced tea. Yes. Yes. The man himself who essentially perjured himself in 2013 uh, when Senator Ron Wyden of Oregon asked him point blank whether or not the NSA was collecting data on Americans. Um, it's just, uh, and of course, Edward Snowden is the one who who clued us all into the fact that yes, they were and they are and they continue to do so. Um, I don't think there's any doubt that the pandemic, for starters, and the January 6th, 2021 insurrection, attempted insurrection, have continued to basically suck the oxygen and, and, and political momentum out of any kind of real reevaluation of this stuff. But that can't be used as an excuse by Congress to not do its job here. Uh, and, you know, at Cato, we're, of course, uh, always in conversation with congressional staff on both sides of the aisle and both chambers about trying to get a bona fide investigation underway. And uh, hopefully we'll have some more to say about that down the road. Patrick Eddington is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast pretty much anywhere and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.